Luke 12, 1 through 12. <clears throat> In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Would you pray with me? Father, we again have the privilege to come and uh, sit under your word. Um, I thank you that... uh, you have spoken to us, you have not left us uh, to ourselves, but you have given us wisdom and guidance, direction, and understanding of who you are and what you've called us to be. So I pray that you would just uh, awaken our hearts and our minds and our understanding to, to, to know the truth contained in your word this morning. I pray that you'd use my words, um, allow your spirit to move uh, through this time to plant deep within us an understanding of you, a love for you and a willingness to submit all of our lives to your Lordship. So we ask you to be with us in this time and bless it, and we ask in the glorious name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. You can all have a seat. One of my favorite things to do is to ski. I love skiing. Um, I didn't didn't start until I was about in seventh grade, but I fell in love with it from the first day I I hit the slopes and uh, skied um, avidly all through high school and through my college years. I don't do it as much anymore, uh, pretty rarely anymore. Uh, a few years ago, I blew out my knee skiing, so that kind of changed my mindset a little bit. And uh, then it just got so stinking expensive, so difficult to get up there that uh, anymore, uh, I, don't, I don't do it as much. But I, I used to love to get out on the slopes. And one of my favorite places to go skiing is actually not in Colorado, as great as Vail and Copper Mountain are. Uh, my, one of my favorite places is Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Jackson Hole Resort is just a phenomenal mountain. And uh, I remember this one epic ski trip that we took up to, to Jackson Hole with, with some buddies. And uh, we got up there, and it was, it was one of those epic weekends with just blizzard-like conditions. Feet of powder was piling up, and we were just going to have the time of our lives. And, uh, and we really did. But uh, the, first, the first day that we got there, we, uh, we hopped on the tram. If you haven't been to Jackson, they have this big uh, box uh, cable car that hauls about 50 to 60 people, I think it is, uh, all the way to the top of the mountain. And you get up there incredibly high. I don't know what the, what the elevation gain is, but it, it's insane. You get up there and you're basically above tree line and just, it's, it's incredible. Well, this time that we went up there, we got up to the top and this storm had settled in and you couldn't see a thing. It was just blizzard-like conditions, just encapsulating the entire mountain. So we get out there and this is my first time actually at Jackson at this point. And so we get out and we start trying to go down the hill and almost instantly I lose 
sight of all the guys that I'm with. And they just disappear into the, into the white cloud and fog. And I have no idea where I'm going. But I figure, well, got to go down, right? So I, I start uh, making my way down this mountain, this treacherous uh, slope. And uh, I'm doing pretty good. I was a pretty confident skier at the time. And so I uh, started getting down. And this, the slope starts getting a little steeper. But I don't really know where I'm going. And then uh, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, I get close enough and I see this sign. And this sign says, danger, cliff area ahead. <laughs> and I quickly start rethinking my choices. And uh, I, as I saw that sign, I was like, you know, I, I loved the Warren Miller ski films back in the day, but I never wanted to actually be a part of one and didn't think that I actually could. So I had really no business being on that, on that slope. And so I ended up having to take my skis off and hike all the way back up the mountain, find somebody uh, that, that could actually get me on the right uh, track to get down to my friends. And I think it took, it was, a, it was some two-hour-plus trip to, just to get down the mountain that time. But uh, as, as I reflect on that, I was so thankful for that sign. That sign that said, danger ahead. Cliff area. This is what's coming. And, and if it hadn't been for that sign, if I had kept going, then I would have been in a world of trouble. And, and you know, who, who knows what would have happened. But because of that sign, I was able to turn, uh, turn back and, and leave. And, and in a similar way, the warnings that Jesus gives in this passage function like that sign did to me. You see, Jesus desires to prepare his disciples to be on guard, to be vigilant against uh, what might be coming and in the face of, of, of oncoming crisis. See, he knows that they are going to face things that challenge their allegiance to him. And the reality is we all do too. We will throughout our lives face things that challenge our confession of Jesus and our allegiance to him. Throughout the life of the church, uh, those things have, have come in many different forms. Sometimes it's outright persecution, like many of Jesus' original disciples faced. Where they, some have been imprisoned, beaten, and their lives even taken from them. Now we may not have those same kind of concerns of, of that facing crisis, but if you've been paying attention, I think we would all recognize that in our current moment there is a, a rising opposition to the Christian faith, to, to what we confess, to what we believe. There's kind of growing tensions in our society and in our culture around us. It's not as popular to believe what we claim to believe anymore, right? Um, I think uh, I read an article recently that this man described that, that years ago uh, we, we lived in a world that was very positive towards Christianity. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was advantageous to be a Christian in business and in the world, and, and we held common uh, assumptions about the world and life and even values and, and morality. And over time, that, is, that, that shifted into what might be called a neutral world, a world in which it was kind of, you know, do your own thing, it didn't really matter. But I think in the last number of years, we've actually shifted more and more in our context, generally speaking, to what would be, could be called a negative world where it's not very advantageous to be a Christian. Uh, depending on where you're at, you may face criticism, opposition. Um, not easy to stand for maybe what you believe. And so sometimes just the challenges that we face is just a social disadvantage. And for other people, sometimes what we face is just the trials and difficulties of life. Maybe you thought that following Jesus was going to look a certain way, and it hasn't quite worked out that way. Actually, your life's been filled with challenge after challenge and difficulty after difficulty, and you sometimes wonder if it's really worth it. 
But you see, when, when we face whatever crisis it may be in our lives or whatever form of opposition that we may encounter, the reality is that, that I think the things that Jesus begins to speak of in this text represent the temptations that we are drawn towards when we face opposition, when we face difficulty. We may be tempted towards these things. And so in this text, Jesus is telling his disciples and saying, I can see what's coming, so look out. Look out, because I, I can see what's happening. You know, one of my least favorite uh, movie genres is kind of the horror film kind of thing. I don't really like horror films. I never really watch them much. But we all know kind of the horror film cliche or trope that is kind of the, the, the characters in the movie are so kind of dumb and thick-headed that they're always running right into danger, right? And as the audience, it creates this kind of tension when you're watching it. It's like they just wander right into the creepy house with the murderer in it, right? And, and, and you could see it coming, or they, they just happen to kind of take a stroll out into the, the, the dark woods where there's something lurking for them. And as, as, the, as you're watching that, you know, the, the tension is, you're saying, I can see it. And you're like, don't go in there. Don't, don't do that. It's, it's, it's right there behind you, right? And, and that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I, I know that this is coming. If you follow me, if you, if you declare your allegiance to me and continue to come after me, then ultimately what lies ahead is some of these difficulties, some of this opposition, and I want to prepare you for that. I want to warn you for that. And so, I believe that we can see three big kind of warning signs in this text. They are first, to beware of hypocrisy, beware of the fear of man, and lastly, to beware of a hollow confession. And so that's how we'll kind of track through the passage this morning. In verses 1 to 3, uh, we see first this where Jesus says, beware of hypocrisy. The, the chapter starts with, with Jesus kind of in this new, new setting. It says, in the meantime, um, he has just kind of uh, confronted the Pharisees in the previous chapter. And here there is thousands of people that have gathered together. It says, all, you know, that they were actually trampling one another. I know we've been filling up uh, the seats around here, but hopefully nobody was trampled coming in here this morning. But uh, this, this crowd is so large that people are, are, are trying to battle for position to get closer to Jesus to hear what he has to say. And the crowds throughout the Gospels are, are interesting things. Sometimes there are these, these throngs of people that Jesus ministers to, that he heals. It seems like a good thing. And then other times it's almost like Jesus ignores them to one degree or another. And what you see as you watch the crowds throughout the Gospels is you, you begin to realize that Jesus oftentimes is far less concerned about mere numbers and more about authentic discipleship. And so against the backdrop of, of this, this, this throng of people, it says that he first speaks to his disciples. And he says this, he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven or yeast became a, a very common kind of uh, illustration in the Scriptures. It pictures something that even in a small amount is, will, will grow and spe spread throughout the whole thing. It will permeate it completely. And Jesus says that the yeast that is, that is introduced by the Pharisees is hypocrisy. This is, this is what Jesus uh, confronted them on last week. And Aaron did a great job walking us through that text of, of confronting them and their self-righteousness, how they would wash the outside of the cup, but inside they were full of greed and wickedness. And so hypocrisy ultimately is this outward performance that hides our true person underneath. It's the idea of putting on a mask or playing a part 
or pretending so that everybody will believe a certain narrative that we want set forth. But Jesus is warning his followers against the subtle influence when we, when we allow outward performance to be pursued at the expense of inward change. And so, I think we all recognize that hypocrisy is, is something that is frequently leveled against Christians, right? I'm sure we all know somebody who maybe has left the church or struggles with their faith because they say, well, the Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. And in many ways, maybe those claims are, are true to one degree or another. But the reality is, hypocrisy is not necessarily just a religious problem, but it's actually a human tendency. Are we not all drawn towards and tempted towards hypocrisy at one level or another? And why is that? Why do hypocrites actually exist? Well, at the end of the day, it's because we all have things about ourselves that we want to conceal or that we want to hide from others. That we don't want others to know about us. Right? You can ask, well, well why, why don't we want people to know certain things about us? Why can't we just be a fully open book? Well, the list for that, those reasons could be numerous. But a few reasons might just be because we're ashamed. Because we, 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 we struggle with, with the guilt of, of who we are or the things that we've done. We know that we're in the wrong. We, we, we know the darkness of our own hearts. And so we attempt to shield ourselves from, from the honesty of actually being known for who we are. And the reality is we do that because we don't actually believe that there's a way to deal with the guilt or the shame. And so the best we can do is to hide it, to conceal it, and try to hope that maybe it'll just go away. Sometimes we, we turn towards hypocrisy because we're afraid. We fear losing what we desire most. Whether that's the approval of others, whether that is a certain status, whether it is certain relationships, certain level of acceptance from others. So we recreate a persona or a person that, that we believe will be accepted, that will be received, that will be able to attain those things that we want. And then ultimately, sometimes we just continue to walk in hypocrisy because we believe that it'll work that we can actually gain what we want if we just pretend long enough. But see, Jesus knows that the disciples will be tempted. They're going to be tempted to either gain popularity from the crowds or they're going to try to avoid trouble by pleasing the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And when we face the things that challenge our faith, we can be tempted towards hypocrisy because maybe it's an opportunity to have it both ways. Maybe we can kind of say that we believe one thing about God and, and, and kind of have you know, some kind of personal faith on one side, but that we can still preserve some kind of favor with the world and we can avoid conflict through maybe conformity and acceptance. But what's the ultimate problem with hypocrisy? It's not real. It's fake. There was a, there was a book and a movie that uh, came out a while back called Ready Player One. And, uh, and in, this, in this film, uh, it was kind of this weird kind of pseudo-dystopian world in which all the people kind of just their primary avenue of connection was through this virtual reality world. I think it was called the Oasis. 
And they would put on their headset and their, their suits and they would, they would enter into this world and they could create whatever they wanted. They could create this avatar of themselves and be whoever they wanted and get all these different powers and all these things and they could, they could enter into that. It's not too far different from a lot of the things that are actually happening in the world today and where we're headed. Um, but the whole struggle of the movie was, was kind of this tension around like, who's on the other end of, of this interaction in the digital world? And, when, and is this a meaningful relationship? And, and what if we actually met outside of that? And uh, in the end, the whole, the whole movie, you know, as, as, I, as I reflected on it, kind of revealed that in the end they all recognized that it, it, it couldn't actually last or sustain because it wasn't real. And they made commitments in the end to, to kind of shut down the oasis for a couple days a week just so people could actually have meaningful relationships. But it was a facade. The avatar that they put forth wasn't their true selves. It wasn't real. It couldn't sustain in the long run. And Jesus tells us why hypocrisy doesn't work. Why at best it's just putting duct tape on a sinking ship. Maybe it'll hold uh, the water out for a moment, but eventually it will go down. And he says it's because this. If you're going to lean on hypocrisy, you better understand this truth. Jesus says... There is nothing that is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Whatever you've said in the dark will be uh, heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is saying, regardless of how you think about it right now, you will be exposed one way or another. Sometimes and oftentimes that will come out in this life. Your true colors will be shown. But in the end, even if you think that you get away with it, even if you think everybody has believed who you are and the picture you've set forth, in the end, before God, on the final day, you will be seen for what you truly are. In Romans, it says that every mouth before God will be stopped. Before God, we ultimately will have no defense. We have nothing behind which we can hide. The only thing that we will have is our true selves. And as, as, as to some, that might sound so, so harsh and, and, and difficult to hear, but in, in, in many ways, if we actually believe this, this is one of the most freeing truths that we can actually come to understand. Because if you actually realize that hypocrisy is not the answer, then what are you left to do? question is then, how do we actually deal with the things that we want to try to hide and conceal from others? The only way to actually overcome hypocrisy is through honesty. We have to be honest with who we truly are. And when you know that you will ultimately be exposed then you can say, yes, I am all of those things. I am ashamed. I do feel guilt. I am flawed. Yes, I fear rejection from people. I am a sinner. I've done all sorts of things that I regret. And only when you actually come to the point of honesty about the depth of depravity in our own hearts, and our own lives, can we actually be in a place where we say, I need a rescue. I need to be saved from this. You see, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was actually an attempt to rescue themselves because if you think that you could fool everyone, if you can get everybody to believe a certain thing about you, and that's all 
that's where it stops. Then the only judgment that you can receive is based on what everybody perceives about you. But what if you can't fool God? If He truly sees you, if He truly knows you, when you hide behind a facade, you'll be exposed ultimately as a fraud. But the good news is that Jesus and God, God, God sees you. He knows who you truly are. And in knowing your condition, He actually sends His Son. He sends Jesus into the world to deal with all the things that we actually want to hide and conceal from everybody else. And it's only through honesty about who we are can we actually turn to the rescue that is offered in Jesus. To say, you take it all. I can't do anything with it. I can't, I can't get rid of the shame. I can't get rid of the guilt. But Jesus, you can. So if you're here, maybe you've been coming for a while and you're ultimately living kind of a Sunday facade. You come here, you sing along, you do all the things that, that kind of makes everybody believe that, that kind of you got it together and that you're, you're doing the Christian thing. But you don't believe it. Your hidden life reveals an allegiance to all sorts of other gods. Take to heart Jesus' warning. Nothing is covered up that will not ultimately be revealed. You may be able to fool all of us, but we, you cannot fool God. And the only way to actually deal with the things you want to conceal is by actually hiding it in God at the cross. Where His blood can cover all of the shame and the guilt that we experience. If you're a Christian, but you have your hidden struggles, the same gospel for the unbeliever is for you as well. This is why the gospel is not just for the non-Christian, but it's for us. When we begin to doubt God's goodness, when we doubt the work that He's done in our lives, and we, we, we drift into lesser things, and we turn back to the, the old way of, of life, and we want to hide and conceal that because we don't know what to do with it, the same truth is for us. We have to believe the words that Paul wrote, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's the doctrine of justification that actually frees us to be open and honest about our failures and about our sins. To bring those things to the light, to fight sin in community alongside of one another. Not hidden and, and just hoping that we can deal with it on our own and pretending like we have it all together. When we truly understand the gospel, it frees us from pretending or performing for others and actually gives us the opportunity to actually grow together. But we all must heed his first warning, beware hypocrisy. Second warning in verse four to, verses 4 to 7 is this. Beware the fear of man. He says, I tell you, friends. It's the only time in the gospel he uses this, this reference as friends. He says, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. He's here warning against living from a fear of man. Again, a common struggle that we have to be, to be so shaped by, by what other people think about us that it shapes our life and our, our actions and our values more than what God has actually called us to be. And Jesus tells us why it's so crucial that we have a properly oriented fear. And he uses this argument that's really a lesser to greater argument. 
Because some of us might be like, well, I don't really want to die, so it seems like a, a valid fear to fear those who, who could actually take my life. But he says you have to actually have a much bigger vision, a bigger understanding. He says, don't fear those who, who can only kill your body. He says, I actually want to tell you whom you should fear. He says, fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. You see, man can only, the, only kill us physically. That's the worst that, that they can do. But he says you have to understand that God is the ultimate and final judge who can ultimately determine your eternal destiny. And he is the righteous judge that ultimately will, in his justice and his holiness, will, will cast some into the place of hell. And Jesus here is warning his disciples in the face of rising opposition. It is a very real reality that they are going to face significant persecution. And we, know, we, we know this from history. Many of his disciples ultimately gave their lives. But, but, but he knows what they're, what they're facing and he knows that they're going to be targeted as well. And so he wants them to have a properly oriented fear so that they can actually face what might be coming. But if you live by the fear of man, you potentially shrinking back in your faith when confronted by men, you may avoid being killed in this life, but it may actually result in something far worse when you stand before God. If your confession of Him is not because of His holiness and who He is, but it's actually at the whim of men. When he, when he says that, they, that he can cast you into hell, he uses this word uh, that uh, in many of our versions is translated as hell, but the, the original word is Gehenna. And it's from a Hebrew phrase that actually means the, the Valley of Hinnom. And this valley is actually referenced in the Old Testament, and it was a, a, a ravine, an area uh, to the southwest of Jerusalem. And uh, historically, it was actually a place of, of, of awful idol worship and even the sacrifice of children to the god Molech. And later it developed into a place where, where, where the, the garbage and the trash and the refuse from the city was dumped and then burned. And so there was this constant burning that took place from there. And so this, this Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, became symbolized as the place of ultimate and final judgment of God. And there's a very sobering reality here that Jesus affirms that, that hell is a reality that, that, that we may face apart from a true confession and dependence of Jesus. He says, if you're going to have a properly oriented fear, make sure that it's a fear of God because He controls your ultimate final destiny. But as much as, as, as this passage gives this, this sense of, of, of a, a fear of God that we need to possess, I love how Jesus clarifies this in verses 6 and 7. Notice what He says, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. So he just said, fear God, and then here he says, fear not. So which is it? And the answer is yes. It's both of these. There's a sense in which we have a, a, a recognition and a respect and a reverence for the holiness and the justice and the power of God. But for those who are under his care, we need not fear 
his character and his person because he holds you and cares for you just like he does the birds. The reference to five sparrows is probably like the meal of kind of the, the poorest person in the market. Um, you could buy five sparrows for uh, maybe like half an hour's worth of work. And uh, I don't know how much meat a sparrow has on it. can't be much, but uh, it probably tastes terrible too. But uh, his, his point is that even the most smallest, most insignificant animal, not one of those sparrows sold for insignificant couple pennies, is remembered and known by God. Even more, the hairs on your head are known by God. Some of us have more than others, but God knows all of them. And He's inviting us to, uh, amidst the, the, the incredible fear that we should have of God, of, 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 of acknowledging who He is, as we come under His care, we receive that same protection that for, that for some would, would instill just a, a, a terrifying expectation of judgment for us under Him. That same strength, that same power, that same majesty provides for us perfect protection. And he's saying that's the care that you should rest under. So have a properly oriented fear of God and not of man. Beware the fear of man. The last warning in this passage is in verses 8 to 12, where he says, beware of what I'm calling a hollow confession. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But the converse is also true. If you deny me before men, you will be denied before the angels. Kind of a strange phrase to this, this reference of, of being uh, affirmed or denied before the angels. But this is language, this referencing kind of the heavenly court, a picture of ultimate final decision. And so these statements are again warnings to Jesus' followers to caution them against a confession that maybe is outwardly correct, but inwardly empty, that is hollow. And what, what does a hollow confession look like? Well, as Jesus describes here, it may look like one that is, that is only personal, but not public. A faith that is not willing to be publicly declared may and likely would be a faith that is merely intellectually affirmed. You know, so for us in this, we, we consider, is, is your faith one that you own, that, that, that permeates all aspects of your life? That following Jesus defines who you are, it is your ultimate identity, or is it just something that you kind of keep secret, you kind of give uh, mental assent, makes you feel better about your, yourself as you go about your week, but man, none of your friends, none of your coworkers, people you're around, your family, none of them even know that you're, you're a Christian. What does that say about the faith that, that, that you claim to possess? And when pressed on it, would you, would you ultimately say, ah, I don't know about that. And Jesus gives a warning. To deny him before men ultimately means that your confession, whatever it may be to you, is ultimately empty. It might, might be, actually be hollow. Now we have to address something in this text, because uh, if you've read your Bible very much, you may have some questions. Uh, in the, especially in the next verse. Because what does this mean for a guy like Peter? Remember Peter? That great, passionate follower of Jesus? Well, what did he do at the end in the garden? Three times he denied Jesus, right? So what about him? Does this apply to him? It was, was Peter even denied before the angels? What do, we, what do we do with this? And this is where I think verse 10 is very important. Although for, for some, maybe verse 10 just seems to complicate things. But let's take a stab at it here. 
Verse 10, he says this. He says, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does he mean by this? This that has been known as the unforgivable sin. May we actually be, be guilty of this, we often ask. Well, when he, he says to speak against the Son of Man and you will be forgiven, what does that refer to? I, I actually think that this does refer to something like what Peter did or even what the Pharisees at the time were doing, right? They have denied Jesus. They have criticized Him. They have pushed against Him. It is an act of rejection, and yet the invitation that one would still turn in faith and recognize Jesus for who He is is still offered. Forgiveness is still offered and able to be found. So it's not a season of doubt or a skepticism that ultimately will condemn a person. He's making that clear. Regardless of where you find yourself right now, maybe doubting, maybe questioning, saying you can still find forgiveness as you turn to Christ. But, he says, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is a different matter altogether. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, as we understand it from even the other Gospels, was, was found in this context where the, the, the Pharisees and others were saying that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. So fundamentally, this, this blasphemy looks something like attributing to Jesus the work of the devil. And when you do that, you are ultimately offering a complete and established denial of who Jesus claims to be. This is ultimately an, an unwillingness to believe. The ultimate this is a sin of unbelief. To say, I will not believe it and know no matter what I see or what I hear, ultimately that's, that's the work of Satan. And when someone is in that place, there will be no forgiveness because the point is that forgiveness is only found by a true confession of Jesus. And when one arrives at a place where they, will ref- they continue and will not recognize Jesus for who He is, that ultimately will be the thing that condemns them. So if you're here and you're wondering, have I, have I ever have I committed that sin? Well, let me just say that if you're wondering about that, if you're concerned about it, it probably means that you haven't done that. And the invitation of, of that forgiveness is still offered to you. Turn in faith. Recognize Jesus for who He is, who He claims to be, and who His life has declared Him to be in His death and His burial and His resurrection. Be careful that your confession of Him is one that will endure when faced with opposition that will not shrink back, that cannot easily be cast aside, but that will even hold up and go forth even into the anxious unknown. As he gives them this final encouragement in the text, he says, when you are brought before rulers and authorities and before the synagogues, it's a very prophetic word because you can just track through the book of Acts and see how all of these things take place with Jesus' earliest disciples. But when that happens, he's telling them, don't shrink back. Don't bail on that. But don't be anxious about, about the unknown, about how, what you're going to do to defend yourself or what you're going to say. But in those moments, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so Jesus is, is inviting them to say, to, to, to not turn back, to not shrink back in the face of opposition. This doesn't mean that we don't Think deeply about the word and, and, and 
study apologetics, and, and as Peter says, be prepared to always give a defense for our, for our faith. That's not ultimately Jesus' point here. Jesus' point is to say, don't have a kind of faith that you're, you're so scared about what people will say, or that you'll have the right things that you, that you just kind of hide and never are actually willing to take a stand or actually represent Christ in any way. He's saying, be willing to, to confess Him before men. And even, in, even amidst the unknown of what that will look like, Trust that the Holy Spirit will be with you, will guide you, will help you in that, will give you even the words to say in the very moment. But will we heed these warnings? Will we heed the warning to beware of hypocrisy? Will we heed the warning to beware of the fear of man? And beware of a hollow confession? Maybe it's just outwardly recognized, but inwardly is hollow. And as much as this passage is filled with all these warnings, it is littered also with hope for us. So let us also, as we move forward, regardless of of, of what it is that lies ahead, let us be hopeful of God's care for us, even in the face of adversity. Be hopeful of ultimate vindication, that on the final day you will be revealed to be a follower of Jesus, that He will declare your name and affirm you before the angels of heaven. Take hope that He knows your value regardless of what you're going through. God has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you, but He understands it intimately. And if a sparrow can, can, can die without Him knowing, apart from Him knowing, cannot do that, then He also knows everything that you're going through. And ultimately, do you believe that He has given His Spirit to you to guide you, to support you, to help you in your time of weakness, in your moment of need? So this week, as you leave from here, would we all commit to just ending hypocrisy, to to stop pretending, to confess Jesus for who He truly is, to believe the Gospel anew, that we don't have to hide but we can, be, we can be open and honest about who we are and at the cross actually find true forgiveness. The only way to deal with our guilt. Can we stop caring more about what people think of us than what God knows about us? Can we this week not give in to the fear of man? Maybe that's in the workplace. Maybe at school. Maybe when somebody asks you, hey, how was your week? Maybe don't just conveniently leave out the fact that you went to church. But maybe, maybe live your faith publicly, unashamed, regardless of how that's going to be received, regardless of, of, of what may come of that. Will you commit yourself to God? That He will sustain you, that He will care for you, regardless of what may come. Let's heed these warnings. And let's live as God's people this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to be able to reflect on these things. I pray that you would help us all to heed these warnings, to live as your people amidst the fear of man, the fear of rejection, the fear of the unknown and what we might face. I pray that you would empower us uh, through your spirit to confidently go forth and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Your life lived for us, your death given in our place. Pray that you would give us the courage to abandon our hypocrisy, to 
recognize and believe that before you we are fully known. And even as you know us, you have sent your Son to die for us and you offer us full and complete forgiveness. Let us live in light of that. Live and walk in the light with one another so that we can actually grow into the people that you have called us to be. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.